Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thank you very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, cooling inflation, the CPI coming in lighter than expected. Stocks are higher. All eyes now on the Fed's next move. Our investment committee debating what all of that means to your money. Joining me for the hour right here at Post 9. Everybody is in the house. Anastasia Amoroso, Joe Terranova, Jim Labenthal, and Steve Weiss. Let's check the markets. As Carl said, a little bit of a round trip. Got off to a really positive start after the CPI came out. We did go negative. We are back positive. Dow's good for about 79 or 80 points or so. Anastasia, you had a little bit of what I guess I'm going to call the Barkin buzzkill. <laughs> Tom Barkin, Richmond Fed, Prez on, on CNBC. I mean, he didn't sound like he was all that moved by CPI. Core still too high, still more to do, still a ways to go. He hasn't seen inflation cracking enough, and he really kept it pretty close to the vest on what's going to happen in May and beyond. Well, I guess somebody has to be the buzzkill. I'm not going to be that. I'm going to take the other side of that. Okay. And I think the CPI report was a good one uh, this morning. First of all, we got the sequential decline in CPI inflation. And in fact, if you look at CPI, which is now running 0.1% month over month, if you extrapolate that into year-over-year year year numbers, we are now actually on pace to 2% when you look at CPI. When you look at the year-over-year number that we got, it's 5% versus 6% the month before. So that's a significant decline. And then here's the thing about the core. If you look at the super core, which is services x shelter, that actually did decline sequentially on a month-over-month and year-over-year basis. A touch. A so, touch. But we'll take that. We'll take that in the context of all the other declining numbers. So not a buzzkill for me. All right, Weiss. I mean, uh, Barkin's a non-voter, but words still matter. Uh, you have some others on the other side, right? Goolsby was pretty dovish, prudence and patience he's been talking about in the last 24 hours. Harker, I don't see why we would just continue to go up, 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 and then go oops, and then go down quickly. Uh, but how do you size up CPI? I mean, you, you did get a good print. You got a good top-line headline print. Uh, I'm actually surprised the market's not higher than it is. Well, it Sustained. was. I'm surprised it didn't it sustain that level. It was until, as I said, right. a bit of a bark and buzzkill because right. he spoke on this network and stocks sold off the more words that came out of his mouth. Right. But, but the market has tended to focus on a single positive point and what could be a sea of negative points. And it's not doing that, say. I think that's because we've got PPI tomorrow. We've got banks, retail sales, we've got Fed minutes today. But look, the core number was still high and it was still sustainably high. So the Fed has to decide, okay, are we on this glide way where we're going to get to our target level without any further tightening? And my guess is they say no, they go another 25. But that really doesn't matter if it's another 25 or not. It's what's the damage that's been done to this point from their policy to date. And that's why I continue to be in bearish camp. But I'll tell you, I really don't, you know, I, I question my 
my, my stance every day. Like, is the market just going to completely look past this? Are valuations, you know, going to be further extended, right? Because we've seen nothing but multiple compression as earnings have come down between last quarter and this quarter, 12%. We've seen the market go up. So, so I don't know. It's bizarre multiple to me. Multiple expansion. It's been multiple expansion. You said compression. Just uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Multiple, uh, multiple expansion, pure and simple. And I don't think that's deserved at this point in the tightening cycle. So I want to get to, to Jim and Joe in a minute. But just since we're on the topic, you got another Fed speaker uh, as we speak. Mary Daly, Steve Leisman, is speaking out in Salt Lake uh, before the chamber there. I'm wondering what we're learning from what President Daly, who, by the way, is also a non-voter, uh, is saying now on the back of, of uh, Barkin this morning. Well, uh, she's going to add to the uh, discussion, shall we say, or the debate. Uh, Daly will say, uh, said that economic strength and elevated inflation suggest the Fed has more work to do. But put an asterisk there. Hold on, because she's going to contradict herself a little bit later. I'll go through the other ones first. She says there's good reason to think policy may have to tighten more. Also says good reason to think the economy may slow without more rate hikes. Banks already, she says, are starting to tighten credit availability and also that it's unknown how much that tightening will occur. Okay, so here's a series of reasons she lays out why the Fed may do less. And credit tightening, she says, could hurt spending and investment. Also, global monetary tightening is going to help temper global growth. What's that going to do? Global growth is going to be a headwind to U.S. growth, and it's going to take time for U.S. rate hikes to take their full effect. And she got a section there why the Fed may have to do more. Well, because growth rates exceed the level consistent with inflation returning to the 2% target. And a number of signs the labor market is beginning to cool, but ultimately remains extremely tight, she says. And the uh, loosening will happen, she says, only gradually. So, Scott, I'll leave it there. She doesn't talk very much. She talks a bit about uh, banking and says they'll they'll be data dependent. uh, And the Fed remains resolute about bringing uh, inflation down and also backing up the financial system if needed. She does not talk about the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, which, of course, happened in her district. So, Scott, I think the way to think about this is she's a little bit more on the fence, maybe joining Austin Goolsby from yesterday, who is a person who's more concerned about the issue of credit tightening than, say, John Williams or Barkin was this morning. Let me just ask you fundamentally, Steve, because I, I really do wonder the answer to this question, whether you put more into what Goolsby said because he is, in fact, a voting member and less on what a Barkin or a Daly say because they're not. Their voices obviously matter, but how much do they matter if they don't actually have a vote? I I would be really boring into that, Scott, if if it was a close vote, but it doesn't matter. You really want to listen to everybody when they speak, whether a voter or not. If it was, you know, a... uh, a nine to eight decision or something like that. I guess there's only 12 voters at the end of the day, but if it was that close, um, you would really uh, uh, want to know who's leaning which way in the voter thing. But any well, Fed president can tell you about a faction on the board and where things are going. I guess uh, Barkin, I mean, sorry, not Barkin, but Goolsby, I think, is enunciating or, or staking out a position uh, among Fed officials that I think is important to see who else sort of gravitates towards him, which is the importance of uh, the uncertainty around the banking situation before making a decision about uh, uh, raising rates. I would, I would only come back to you and say, yeah, I hear you. That makes perfect sense. 
But given the environment that we're now in post SVB, you could have more of a debate in that room than you've had since we started on this yeah. tightening regime. Sure. And the minutes today are sure. really going to give a tell as to how close it was last month, to which we glean how close it That's might be yet again on May 3rd. All good points, Scott. But let me say, I, I, I don't think Barkin is what the market thinks Barkin is. I'll tell you this. I, I mean, I, I've read Barkin's comment like three times and I don't quite understand it. When he says he needs to see this before he does what? Before he pauses, before he stops hiking, before he cuts? Uh, it's unclear in his statement uh, what exactly he's referring to. And I highly doubt that Tom Barkin is sitting there changing the metric for the Fed to either pause or pivot. And that metric is convincing evidence they're heading back towards the target. I highly doubt that Barkin is sitting here uh, laying out a new metric that we didn't already know. So I'm, I'm kind of discounting that Barkin comment as not really telling me information that I didn't have previously because I just don't think Tom is doing that. Okay. Uh, good insight, of course, from you, Steve, uh, as always. We'll see in a couple hours, actually, uh, if not before, yeah. when those minutes do hit the tape, because it's going to be highly relevant yep. to what may happen in, uh, in a few weeks' time. That's Steve Leisman following the Mer Mary Daly uh, speech, which uh, we're going to get momentarily. Jim Labenthal, I come to you. CPI, what you think it means for the market, uh, what you think it means for what the Fed may do, as you have urged that they should do nothing more. And I continue to urge that. I do still think, by the way, Scott and everybody, that uh, the, the Fed is the most important force in the markets right now. Uh, the amount of damage, uh, to Steve's point, we're going to have to wait and see whether this is, you know, one or two quarters of earnings decline and then we take off again. But if they continue raising, that damage, by definition, is going to get worse. Now, the reason I don't think they should raise again is let's just look at those numbers. We know that through the middle of last summer, inflation got way out of hand, at least in part because of the war in Ukraine. But since those June numbers, we've been running at an annualized pace of 3.7% on the CPI headline. Why do I focus on that? Because the Fed funds rate right now in the middle of the range is 4.875. That means the real Fed funds rate, I'm looking at my friend Anastasia, who's a strategist here, the real Fed funds rate is not just positive, it's very positive, and it's going to get more very positive as inflation continues to come down. So if the Fed is looking at this, what they should be saying is we don't want to make a mistake. A mistake would be raising rates by another 25 basis points, putting a heck of a lot of pressure on the banking system, perhaps further incentivizing deposit flows out of the banking system. That is not what they want. They have victory in their hands. They need to just accept it. You keep focusing, though, on the headline. I am. Which, which they are focused more on the core. They are wrong and, and, to do and that, services. Scott. They are wrong to do it. Will you it forgive me for interrupting you? Because I apologize. I don't like it when you interrupt me, and I apologize. But well, I'm going to get back. But here's, here's you. why this is important. Here's why this is important. Go ahead. The Fed should be independent. Okay, we learned that in business school. We learned that in undergrad economics. You want an independent Fed. The independence of the Fed is under threat, and it has been under threat for many years. If they continue raising rates as CPI headline, which is what the world, the average Main Streeter looks at, continues to come down, and they're focused on on super core and this and that and you know what the price of disposable razors are doing and missing the forest for the trees they're going to get obliterated by congress they should not want that they should accept victory joe the biggest force in the market right now is what happened in the month of march it still continues and it leads to significant credit tightening so you could look at the inflationary report today 
you could take a degree of optimism from grocery prices at the lowest level since September of 2020, shelter costs finally coming down to levels we haven't seen in November, energy prices down 3.5%. Well, guess what? Energy right now, the price of oil is above $83, so scratch that off your list of excitement. I think that, as I said yesterday, this is the first of a hailstorm of data that we are going to have to digest. I think that the credibility of the Fed needs to be called into question. I think the damage is already done. I think the big story is the economic contraction that's unfolding and doing the Federal Reserve's job for it. And quite candidly, that's one of the reasons why the market's rallying. The charts look great and the market is rallying because you're seeing the mega caps, which are seen as safe havens, lead the market higher. So most importantly, if I'm the Federal Reserve, guess what I'm doing? I'm watching retail sales on Friday and I'm listening to the earnings conference calls because you'll see what the real reality is on the ground. Twice. So it, it and then we're bringing in our headliner, Jeremy right. Siegel, so, who's so, waiting, and all of you. I know want to hear from him, but make this so, point so quick. So, look, I, I've, I've never said I think the Fed should go. What I've said is I think the Fed will do. And the flaw there, it doesn't matter whether you think they're doing the wrong thing. It's a question in terms of looking at headline versus core. They look at core. So that's what you have to deal with in assessing what your position is in the market. So I do believe that the Fed will go because 5.6% core ticked up a tenth of a point. And energy, as you point out that that's why they don't look at energy because it was down for the last month now it's up again so that's why they'll go 5.6 percent in core is not victory and the biggest risk is letting inflation run rampant and they don't have to wait for retail sales they heard warren buffett talk about it today that all of his companies pretty much except for insurance are weakening that the economy's coming off which means that i don't think you want to put new money into the market all right let's bring in our headliner today the wharton professor uh, Jeremy Siegel, who is back with us, and uh, we're so glad to have you, Professor, on this day. You said a couple of weeks ago, quote, I can't be optimistic until the Fed, shall we say, gets it, and there's no sign they do yet. Uh, how do you feel hearing these comments that we've gotten today and what you might hear in the days ahead? Yeah, I mean, I believe the Fed has already done too much. I voiced that for the last six months that their trajectory was uh, way too high. Uh, by the way, speaking about the core, if you actually put real shelter prices in, I mean, from apartment list, Zillow, or the Case-Shiller number, I've done the calculation. Core has been zero inflation for the last four to five months. So it really wipes out the core if you use real shelter prices instead of the, as we know, dramatically lag prices that the Fed is using. So really, core is not a problem. Uh, they they should have stopped. They shouldn't have raised last time. They it looks like they're going to raise again and and make an announcement of a pause. I really hope Austin Goolsby makes a dissent because there has not been a dissent for over a year at the Fed. Groupthink has reigned. I think to the detriment of monetary policy and the and, and the American economy. And uh, I would like to see another voice actually make a dissent at the meeting. So uh, if, if they I, raise, I am awaiting that. Professor, if they raise in a few weeks time, what happens to stocks? Well, I think it depends. I mean, we still have, what, three weeks to go of, of, of data. I mean, I, I, I really think, uh, again, 
what happened to the banking system and what I see in data on lending falling off the cliff uh, really portends a much bigger decline in economic activity. I, I am shocked that uh, no, no one at the Fed has actually cited the reduction in lending that has occurred almost the most in, in, in 75 years, actually. Uh, we know M, M2 liquidity last year uh, uh, fell by the most in 85 years. It's falling again this year. The squeeze on liquidity has, is much greater, believe it or not, uh, on, on, on the money supply than we even saw during 1970, uh, 2007-2008. Now, I'm not claiming we're going to have that because that froze the entire banking system. But what we saw with SVB and, and the lending standards, I think the Fed uh, should absolutely not raise. What does this mean? The probability of recession has gone up. Listen, I, I said for the last two months, I'm not really optimistic about stock prices in 2023. I hope they go up. Um, uh, they but might. You were, though. Uh, but you were, uh, but, you but, were until but not that long ago. You, you thought we were going to have a big run. I think they'll finally get it. 2000, so we'll have a recession. Suppose we have a recession. Earnings are down 10%, 12%. You, you give me a number for a year, year and a half. Uh, then they're going to boom again, 2024, 2025. And uh, I, I think those are going to be great years. If you look over the trough, I'm still saying don't, even though it might be rough over the next three, six months, unless you're very tactical and very short term, I mean, I'm not a seller. I hear you, but it was only about a month ago where you told me, and I believe you told me this on Closing Bell, that stocks could go up 10 to 15% this year. So you've well, pushed your own outlook that far out to, to 24 and now 25 in part because well, of think, what, what, the, Fed, what was, the Fed uh, has uh, done uh, on, the, on the back heel of the banking crisis that we, we went through with SVB? No, I no, and I, I, I if, if I remember, I was for 10 and 15 in January. That's what I said and maintained it till SVB. And when I saw, in addition, the Fed not getting it and raising in March and not even putting pause really in their statement, at that particular point, uh, you know, I, I said that I didn't think 1015. I, I was saying 510, 010, uh, you know, and I said this, you know, listen, the, the, the one year projection, the six month, nine month projection we know uh, is, is uh, uh, very volatile uh, in the short run. I, as soon as I saw that, I became pessimistic and defensive for this year. Um, and uh, but not for 2024. Yeah, I know. But that's a that's a that's a long time out. I mean, do, do you think the Fed ends up cutting rates this year? Yes, absolutely. I absolutely think the Fed is going to be cutting rates much more than than even the Fed funds rate indicates by the end of the year when they see the slowdown in inflation and the slowdown in economic activity. Don't don't forget, Scott. Their, their last projection, and I made, made this point, they projected in March negative GDP growth for second, third, fourth quarter because they, they gave a, a year projection of 0.4, and the first quarter is already going to be one and a half to two and a half. So it's negative. Um, and uh, I, you know, 
That is a recession. I, I mean, I don't know how you not can call three quarters of, neg- of negative GDP a recession. And that's the official that's the official forecast of the Fed. Uh, and I don't think they recognize how much tightening took place by, you know, the fallout from SVB and, and uh, the lending situation. So it could be more severe than that, which could lead to more decline in earnings. That's when I became more pessimistic for this year. You know, I'm still a, a very bullish long-term investor. Um, I know people on this show love love to get a good short-term uh, prediction. Um, I'm more cautious on short-term than I've been for a, a long time. Mm. I'm going to leave it there. Uh, I think that's a good place to end it. Uh, Professor, thank you as always. That's Professor Jeremy Siegel from the Wharton School joining us. Uh, Weiss, I'm more pessimistic in the short term than I have been in some time. That's how Professor Siegel ended his commentary today. You don't often hear him say things like that, though, when it relates to the Fed continuing to talk like they're pushing the pedal to the floor even more. Mm -hmm. That's what you get. Yeah, and, and I agree with that, that the earnings pressure you see. But if he's looking for the Fed, to really cut at the last part of the year, I assume the last quarter, they'll start messaging that before, and then. Well, not necessarily. Well, I mean, you know, things happen pretty quickly. Well, they do, but they're not going to all of a sudden say, "Okay, we've been tightening. Now we're going to cut." I don't think they're going to cut this year unless unless the economy really tanks, and I see a, maybe a moderate recession. My point is, if they're going to start cutting towards the end of the year, they will message it beforehand, okay? Because that's what they do. The market's going to take off at that point. So, so, it's a, so I'd say there's a little conflict in what he's saying. That yeah, short term, okay, be very bearish. I'm bearish. I'm negative. But then as you go out the Intermediate term, six months or maybe even less, according to his view in the Fed, then the market's just going to take off. I don't ascribe to that view. I still don't believe that they cut this year. Anastasia? I don't believe that they cut this year, but I'm very much in the they should pause camp because Jeremy, uh, Professor Siegel said it right that there's been so much tightening that's been infused into this economy, and the Fed should just sit back and relax and watch the lagged impacts of the fact that they've raised interest rates by 500 basis points. I mean, Scott, if I look at the personal loan rates that people are paying, if I look at the auto loans uh, that people are having to pay now, you know, if I look at the credit cards, we're now paying 20% on credit card debt. So all of that is tremendous amount of credit tightening. And Professor Siegel said this too, but if you look at the net new lending to commercial real estate and commercial and industrial loans, that is now in negative territory on a four month, four week rolling basis because small banks, regionals have pulled back. So the Fed has done a lot. Now it's the time for the banking sector to sort of do this next leg of tightening. And I think that's already playing out. So why add more tightening fuel? to But everything you say supports a bearish view, because what you're saying is the Fed's done too much. It's really going to hit earnings, really going to hit the economy. So you have to be bearish on the market short term. I mean, I think the Fed is essentially telling you. And look, in the little that I think that that Barker was willing to, to give up. Right. Barkin, excuse me, um, was willing to really give up today. Sarah asked him point blank, do you still think that we could have uh, a soft landing? And his response to that question was, we want to break inflation. That to me says that yeah. they as a group are willing to break the economy because they don't think that it's going to be cracked in so many pieces that you can't put it back together right. again that they believe that that's what it's going to take to, to hit inflation to the degree that they don't have to come back and do this again. They're right. ready to but, break the economy. 
but my point is, anybody saying the Fed's done too much can't be bullish short term. Because the Fed controls the economy. Let's take a quick break. All right. Let's take a quick break. We have to. Uh, Straight ahead. uh, We're going to talk about what Warren Buffett said about the banks. The uh, Berkshire CEO telling CNBC why he sold most of his bank stocks except one. Plus, the committee's top picks in that group. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Dow is good now for 101, as you just saw there. We're back on the halftime. Report, billionaire investor Warren Buffett talking to banks today, saying to our own Becky Quick, quote, I would not sell Bank of America. His comments come as the banks gear up to report earnings later this week. Uh, Weiss, I'm going to go to you on that first, and then you, Joe. Weiss, you own B of A, and if I do recall, it was a few months back, a couple months or so, where you you were selling a little bit of B of A, weren't you? I did, but I bought it back when it got flushed with uh, SVB. Okay. Look, I, I... I, I share his thoughts on Brian Moynihan. I mean, he's been as steady as goes. He's lower pri- profile than Jamie Dimon, who obviously also is super high quality. And I'll go back to what I've said repeatedly, that the, those two bank CEOs, as well as David Solomon at, at Goldman, have been battle-tested repeatedly and have come through with flying colors. Sorry to guard them as great franchises, long-term holds, and that's why I'm there. You can trade around a little bit when you have the opportunity to buy more, you buy more like we got. Uh, so I'm, I'm content staying there. Joe, B of A? I'm staying there. I think deposit inflows is going to be the story for this uh, upcoming earnings season. I think both J.P. Morgan and Bank of America are going to give you strong deposit inflows. I also think commercial real estate charge-offs will be relatively low uh, for J.P. Morgan and for Bank of America. I would also look at the super regional USB. I think they're going to benefit for deposit inflows, and that's going to be required to offset the weakness you're going to have from net interest income and from FIC trading. FIC trading is going to be weak. It's going to impact yep. Citi. It's going to impact Goldman Sachs. It's going to impact Morgan Stanley. There are, we, there are definitely weak elements to report, but mm-hmm. what I would tell you is from real-life experience that J.P. Morgan, there's a queue to get NB of A to open an account there still. So when they bring that in, don't forget the other side of that is that they earn a return on those deposits, and they're not giving you those high rates that the smaller banks are giving. Jimmy, so it'll be minimum margin pressure. Goldman, by the way, did get upgraded today at UBS to a buy price target to 385 from 350. That's a nice 
potential upside in their view? Yeah, and I think one of the things that a guy like me looks at with Goldman Sachs is the capital markets business, which has been really, really low for several quarters. Um, I'm not suggesting that the first quarter is going to be any better, but I do think that eventually we're going to come out of that malaise and Goldman will benefit well. They also obviously have the trading arm. Uh, and then there's this question of how fast are they exiting the consumer business, which is what I'd really like them to do, get back to their core businesses. I was going to say you own Berkshire, but you don't own Bank of America. You, you choose Citi, Goldman, and JPM. Why is that? Do you feel like you get your B of A exposure by owning Berkshire, or is that just too simplified by uh, me? It, well, it, look, I have a lot of financial exposure to begin with. I think the, the question that I ask myself is why do I ask, uh, own Citigroup, right? I mean, it's, it's been the laggard of the bunch. I do think that Jane Frazier is a lot better at leading that company than the market has given her credit for. But, but I will say this. There's a catalyst that needs to happen very soon, and this, that's the sale of the Banamex operations. I think that and what that does to the balance sheet, what it does in terms of simplifying their business to understand will be very helpful to shareholders. But that's been I've been waiting for that for a while, and I'm starting to wonder why it's taking so long. Did you answer my question about Bank of America or no? I feel um, like you uh, you punted right uh, on the well, city. No, but, but, you know, it's, it's my way he of didn't. saying it's my way of saying I'm neutral on Bank of America. I don't own it. I don't hate it. Okay. I've got other things that I have other reasons to be in in the financial sector. All right. I mean, you said I asked myself the question. I was like, okay, well, that's a good thing you don't ask yourself the question. I ask you the question, but you didn't answer my question. So I was going to come back at you. How about the banks? Uh, look, I don't love bank equities here. Uh, I will say that I think there's two silver linings that can play out in the first reporting quarter for, for the regional banks. First of all, we have seen deposit outflows stop for the small regional banks. And in fact, we've seen a small inflow in the last few weeks. So that's one positive. And then the other one, if you think about SVB, for example, it was all about the negative marks on those securities because rates rose. But guess what? Rates fell in the first quarter. So as a result, the markdowns have been taken and you could actually see a mark up. So I think those are the silver lining, Scott. But at the end of the day, it's still a competition for deposits. And if you look at the online savings rate, it is that so much higher than what the banks are currently paying. So the banks will have to have a higher cost of funding, lower net interest margin, and of course, the rate in the lending as well. So I'm not bullish about unbanked equities, but if you look at bank preferreds, um, and if you can get an eight, nine, or maybe even higher percent yield, I think that's an interesting place to be. And I'm glad we were talking about the large cap banks, because again, bank preferreds of some of the more stable institutions, I think, are really interesting. Okay. We, uh, we have a lot of stocks to trade coming up. We have a defense battle, an upgrade for one, a downgrade for another, our chart of the day. One airline stock is down a lot, too. We're going to kick all of that around coming up. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started.
Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Bertha Coombs. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Memphis area officials will meet to discuss whether to reinstate Justin Pearson to the Tennessee legislature after Republicans voted to expel him and another black lawmaker for protesting gun violence on the chamber floor. Democrats hold a majority on the 13-seat voting board, but only a handful have publicly commented about whether they will vote to return Pearson to the legislature. A large fire at a plastics recycling facility in Indiana continues to burn. The blaze began in a tractor trailer and then spread to six structures on the property. Fire is now contained, but is expected to burn for several days. Richmond closed schools for the day and ordered evacuations within a half mile of the fire as EPA officials continue to monitor air quality. And NPR is quitting Twitter. National Public Radio saying it will no longer post new content to its 52 official Twitter feeds after the news organization's main account was labeled as, quote, government-funded media by the Musk-owned social media platform. Scott NPR says it gets less than 1% of its annual budget from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting government funding. Back All right, Bertha, thank you. That's uh, Bertha Coombs. All right, battle of defense stocks today. We've got a couple of interesting calls in the space. Wolf upgrading Raytheon outperform. Why now is the right time, they say. Bear downgrades Lockheed to neutral. Jimmy, you have Raytheon. Price targets 117, and that's a nice upside, according to them, too, what they, what they think it can do. I, I like Raytheon. It's a dual threat. It has the commercial aerospace business with the Pratt & Whitney uh, engine business. And then it has, obviously, the defense business, which is missiles, uh, primarily missiles. And uh, both of those businesses are in growth mode right now. Uh, stock is, is not a very demanding valuation here at all. Um, again, I just, I just see the primary growth drivers, the fundamental growth drivers, being very strong for both of those businesses. Joey, Lockheed is you, right? Price target 513. Yeah, Lockheed has been in the ETF for the last year. Um, listen, the price target should be 513. I understand the downgrade here. You're not going to get 40% return like you did in 2022, but what you are going to get is exposure to a consistent increase in defense spending in this country. And somewhat surprisingly, President Biden's administration did raise that spending. That spending is going to go to nearly a trillion dollars at some point uh, in this decade. So it trades at a reasonable valuation at 17 times. I think this is all about just tempering expectations, but I still believe owning Lockheed Martin, which is the biggest defense company, is the right play. Weiss, you used to own Lockheed. I did. Uh, their growth is slowing. As a matter of fact, they won't have any growth over the next couple of years. And so you're seeing flat. So, so I sort of got in front of the downgrades. Um, I love the, the industry. But you've reflected a lot of the move in it. And Raytheon's up pretty substantially over the last six months. Raytheon will be growing more than Lockheed. So maybe that's a place to go and slightly cheaper looking forward. Uh, I like the sector. I mean, they, they are just perennial cash cows. So, so why not own it? It's a question of where you get it. All right. Uh, we are going to squeeze in another break. I'm also seeing some new headlines moving from Mary Daly at as that speech, uh, I think I said it was out in Salt Lake, uh, is ongoing. She's making some interesting comments, too, about her outlook for the economy. I'll share that with you when we come back. Grade my trade. Send us your latest stock move, and the investment committee will debate it and grade it. Email us at askhalftime at cnbc.com or tweet us, hashtag grade my trade.
We're still hanging on to the green. I told you that Mary Daly, the San Francisco Fed president, that speech we were anticipating is ongoing out in Salt Lake uh, with Miss Daly saying that most likely there will be no recession. Joe, that's a commentary that she just makes uh, now. See, okay. uh, we're, we're still green across the board. Remember, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen yesterday was reasonably upbeat on the economy as well. You said earlier they already broke it, them being the Fed. That's correct. And that part of what you're looking at is relates to our chart of the day, which we're going to do in a minute. But you're worried about the consumer. Of course, I'm worried about the consumer. And I guess I have to say I respectfully disagree with both the Treasury Secretary and uh, what we've heard now from Fed uh, Governor Daly. The economy is in select industries in a recession. You can't tell me the financial services industry is not in a recession. Manufacturing yeah, that's is not in how a they recession. Look at it, I mean, you, you okay, know, so I, I hear want, you. Okay, so I we want you. a universal definition of a recession. We've had a valuation recession. We're going to have an earnings recession. We already have technology. One. We already have one. Technology, the biggest component of the economy, it's in a recession. What are, what are we what are we seeking? What are we trying to identify that we could say, okay, we had a universal recession? We're there. Jim doesn't think we are. I'm not sure this is the fight I want to have. I mean, I'll do it because I've got to. You brought me into it. But I mean, what I would point out as a counter to you is you look at things like, for instance, you know, steel manufacturing going up, prices. I mean, there's no there's no recession in steel. There's no recession in industrial. Look at employment and construction and engineering. That's been going up because there's a lot of non-residential construction going on. Your point, I think you're making, is we're having what Ed Yardeni calls a rolling recession. Housing last year and into this year has been in a recession. It's coming out of it. Technology is in a recession. It will eventually come out of it. But there are other industries that are going strong. But I define recession by the overall economy, which right now GDP is still nicely positive. Sure, but and Joe, Joe would say... Can I respond? No. Well, hold on. I will give you a chance. But Joe would say, take a look at our chart of the day, American Airlines. And he would say that their guidance is, if not the canary in the coal mine type thing in terms of what may be coming from the consumer as it relates to air travel, their willingness to spend and buy airline tickets that have only gone one way, and that is straight up. Right, Joe? I mean, I've set you up pretty well of what I think your view is. Look, 100%, and, and I'll say this off the top, I was wrong about casinos, okay? Scratch that off. When you talk about steel prices, when you talk about material pricing, it's indicative of an environment where inventories, whether it's lumber, whether it's select petrochemicals, uh, Inventories are rising, therefore prices are lower. Manufacturing as an industry, manufacturing as an industry has had five consecutive monthly contractions below 50. It's just a statistical fact. Now, you look at what we heard from the airlines today, from American Airlines, right? They're talking about a consumer that is finally becoming cost conscious. You're talking about weekly bookings that are beginning to decline. Costco last week talking about an environment in which big ticket purchases are beginning to decline as well. Jimmy, to me, that is just the setup that the Federal Reserve has already done the damage that we are seeing in areas that matter most Here's of where the we economy. Disagree. Here's where we Let disagree. finish. But you've been going on for a long time. You don't like that? Well, I think you've made your point. Okay, so be respectful and let me finish because I'll finish in a second. I'll finish faster if you do it respectfully. So in areas of the economy that matter most, Jimmy, I think we're seeing exactly what you talked about at the beginning of the show. And what I believe is that there's an economic contraction, higher interest rate costs, credit conditions tightening, higher oil expense 
Sorry, go ahead. Uh, that's okay. Listen, I, I think you're missing some of the positives in exactly what you're saying. So talk about inventories for a second. Look at major industrial producers in this economy, the auto manufacturers, Boeing. These guys are going to produce as much as they can with their supply chains, no matter what happens to GDP, no matter what happens to Salesforce employment numbers. Those are important parts of this economy. The multiplier effects, I could toss to Anastasia, but I don't know if we have time. Look, the multiplier effects of building jet airliners and, and cars and shipping those cars, it is tremendous. I want to know, what I want to know, hang on, I'm sorry. Um, Delta Airlines reports tomorrow morning. Yeah. Okay. That's your stock. Yep. Right. Are you now, are you concerned at all by what American had to say in terms of their their uh, profit guide? I, I'm not. And here's why. American Airlines actually increased its guidance from a month ago. Now, the problem was the, es- the estimates were well ahead of that. So it disappointed estimates that just frankly got ahead of themselves. I am, however, Scott, very interested in what Ed Bastian says. My perspective mainly comes from what companies say. And Ed Bastian is a truth teller. He's a clear communicator. If there is the slowdown, and frankly, there may well be, okay, but if there is the slowdown from the consumer, I have questions for him that I want to hear. What's going on with international travel? Part of what we're talking about, you've got to remember that last year was gangbusters for domestic travel. Gangbusters. We shouldn't be expecting okay. that to increase. Here's what I don't understand, all right? And I know I ask you this as it relates to when you talk about how strong the auto industry is, how everybody needs a car, blah, 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 Okay. Over the last year, American Airlines is down 24.5%, while you almost every time you're on talk about the strength of the airlines and uh, TSA numbers and on and on and on and on. Delta Airlines is down 13.5%. XAL is down 24.5%. If I was to pull up uh, one year, let's say, of General Motors or Ford, they don't tell a great story. So there's a difference between what you think you see in terms of economic strength in various businesses and what the translation is in various stocks. That's, a, that's an absolutely fair point. I will agree with you. I'm not investing in the rearview mirror. I thought these stocks, the ones we're talking about, would have performed a lot better by now. I'm surprised they haven't. Why haven't a, they if things have been so good? Because everybody is so concerned. Listen to the conversation we're having about a recession. We've been doing this for a year. A recession's coming. A recession's coming. Atlanta Fed GDP is still at 2.2 percent. We're still creating hundreds of thousands of jobs a month. The multiple on Delta has gone, the Ford multiple has gone from eight to five. Okay, that's not a, that's not the business getting worse. That's the sentiment on the stock getting worse. Okay, and I, that is likely to change. I just have to add this one point. And Jimmy, by the way, I think stocks go higher. And I think the time to buy stocks is when you have an economic contraction. But can you explain to me why a two-year Treasury is down 120 basis points if the economy is so strong. I think I know where you're going. I no, will just, agree with you. I think that the market thinks, and I think that the Fed has gotten it wrong. I'm with you. I'm with Jeremy Siegel that that 25 basis point cut, excuse me, hike a month ago, was was ridiculous. That's going to be the first one they take off. It, it had no purpose whatsoever. 100 right. basis points lower in yields is not a strong economy. You mean, I need you to... Have some water. You need to, I need you to rest up. We, I'm really we entertained. Still have, Can they keep going? We still have Buffett. We still have Buffett on Paramount. Those comments event. were really interesting, as much for what he said as what he didn't say. We'll talk about that next.
All right, we're back. Among the other topics Warren Buffett discussed today with Becky Quick in Japan, his stake in Paramount. Listen. It isn't fundamentally that good a business, whether it was distributing, producing movies, or and, and you've got some people that have got deep pockets that aren't going to quit. And the product they're offering people, the chance to watch all those movies, you know, for peanuts and all that. But can they raise prices? We'll find out. But so far, they haven't been able to. They've been able to attract subscribers, but they have tracked them at a terrible price. All right. You gave a whole lot of reasons why not to buy Paramount. Why did you buy it? Well, we'll see what happens. I mean, I thought it was very interesting what he said. It is fundamentally not fundamental. It isn't fundamentally that good a business. And then sort of chuckled. So with, sure. Why do you own it? We'll Charlie, see. Charlie Munger really came down, down on it, too, about two months ago. Totally separate interview. It was about two months ago. Charlie Munger uh, pretty pretty well came down on it. This is clearly not a Munger-Buffett uh, pick. This is clearly Todd Combe and Ted Wexler. I mean, I can't prove that. How do you know that? Well, I can't prove it, but, I mean, look at these comments. I know, That's, but you, well, what do you mean? He, Faber said earlier, so, you know, he filled in the blank as to why he own it, because obviously they think it's going to get taken out. Uh, maybe. I don't think so. I, I think, honestly, this is Ted Wexler and Todd Combs, who are the heir apparents as far as the CIO role goes uh, at Berkshire Hathaway. I can't prove that, Scott. This is supposition, okay? Just just like David Faber's he comment. He said is. streaming itself also isn't a good business. Well, I, I, I disagree. Um, and here's, here's what my thesis is. You've seen the results of subscriber counts continually for the last six quarters exceed expectations at Paramount. They are at peak spend. They're at the moment right now where spending and flex and they get on the path to profitability, perhaps even by the middle of next year. But the point is, is they're no longer just starting this business. They're growing it rapidly. In fact, in terms of subscriber counts, they've added the most subscribers of anyone over the last year. So I, I, I think that's the future of the business and I think they're executing on it very well. Do you respectfully disagree with the Oracle? Or maybe you can say I agree with their error parents, because I do think it's Todd Combs and Ted Wexler. Yeah, I, I, wow, you just don't want yeah. to even acknowledge that, you know, Warren Buffett. He could... slammed it. I mean, there's no there's no gray area here. He doesn't like it. But that's why. Look, Buffett is not somebody who's going to take a flyer on a stock, lick his finger and put it in the wind and see what happens. That's just not the way he is. Steve wants to say something. No, I, I just think of all the great in, of all the great investors we've had come on. That's the highest praise we've ever heard on one of Jim's positions. <laughs> we do final <laughs> trades next. <laughs> Uh, I can't believe you. <laughs> All right, welcome back. Speaking of streaming, David Zaslav, the Warner Brothers Discovery CEO, they're laying out their new streaming service today. And he's going to join us, 315, on Closing Bell. Can't wait for that. Let's do final trades. Anastasia, you go first. Bank preferreds uh, get paid close to 8%, and it's a conservative way to add to banks at this point. All right, Pharma Jim. Vertex, new position for me, moving uh, to diversify from cystic fibrosis into other treatments. Okay, Mr. Weiss. Moderna, good PVC, BCV data this weekend. Moderna, I, I, after the, the flu data, we didn't even have you on for that. Yeah, thank you. I mean, you don't care about no, that? No, I think it was muted. It's Look, one hand, the it's superior on, on A, it, I think the stock's wrong. Okay. Totally. ConocoPhillips, I still think the S&P goes to 4,200. All right, I'll see you on the CB in the exchanges now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. 
From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 